Hi, this is Matthew Christopher, creator of the Abandoned America book series, website, and the podcast you're listening to. Thanks for listening, and I hope you're enjoying it so far. If you are, and you'd like to support the podcast and help keep it going, there are three things you can do that'll really help out. The first is simple. Just tell your friends and family about it, or leave a positive review on your podcast platform if they support it. Good word of mouth makes a huge difference. Second, if you'd like to hear early episodes and see exclusive essays and photos that aren't on my website yet, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash abandonedamerica. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash abandonedamerica. Third, if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, just drop me a note at admin at abandonedamerica.org. That's A-D-M-I-N at abandonedamerica.org. Every little bit counts, and I've got some really exciting episodes that I think you'll love coming up. Don't forget, you can also visit my website, abandonedamerica.us, for tons of photo galleries and background info on hundreds of abandoned sites, or order my two Abandoned America books from your favorite retailer. everybody. Today we're wrapping up the first season of the Abandoned America podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it so far, and I'll be back in a month or so with more stories from the abandoned places in our midst. We'll talk to a woman who is the mayor of a ghost town with one of the strangest backgrounds I've ever heard, a young man who tried to save an historic church in his neighborhood, and a developer who purchased an abandoned mall, and so much more. For the season finale, though, I'm going a bit out of the sequence the episodes were recorded in because I wanted to get this one up to you right away. Today, we're going to be talking about Chernobyl. Yeah, I know this is the Abandoned America podcast and Ukraine is definitely not in America, but hey, it's my podcast so I can do what I want, right? Besides, Chernobyl is such a fascinating area if you have any interest in abandoned places, and yet so many people seem to know so little about what it's actually like there. Today, I'm joined by my guest, Mihailo Teslinko, a Ukrainian guide who has been taking visitors, including me, through the remains of Chernobyl and Pripyat for years. Mihailo, who goes by Misha, is a terrific guy who you can find by looking up Private Chernobyl Guide on social media, and he's here with me to discuss what it's like spending so much time in the exclusion zone, what some of the most popular misconceptions are about visiting Chernobyl, and what it's been like dealing with the horrifyingly brutal and destructive Russian invasion of his homeland. In this episode, we're not going to talk as much about the history of the disaster at Chernobyl, since there are hundreds of excellent reference points for that as it is, and I'll include a few of those links in the description of the episode. But I'd like to provide you with a quick refresher. On April 26, 1986, there was a meltdown in Reactor 4 of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant, and it released enormous amounts of radiation into the surrounding area. It was the worst accident in the history of nuclear power. Pripyat was the nearby city where nearly 50,000 people, who were mostly workers at the plant and their families, lived. Nearly everyone was evacuated. Reactor 4 was enclosed in a concrete sarcophagus, and the city of Pripyat has been abandoned since. Misha and I are going to get into what Pripyat, Chernobyl, and the surrounding areas are like now. 
From the pre-COVID period when Pripyat was getting tens of thousands of visitors each year to the incredibly foolish and dangerous actions taken by the Russian army when they took over the zone. Misha is a fascinating person with a really unique perspective and I'm tremendously grateful and honored that he could share that with us today. With that, let's get to it. As always, I'm Matthew Christopher and you're listening to Abandoned America. Misha, thank you so much for coming. I'm so happy to have you with us here today and to have the opportunity to share your experiences with people that haven't been to Chernobyl or Pripyat. So I guess maybe to start, could you tell us a little bit about yourself for people that don't know you yet? Thank you so much, my friends. I'm very glad to see you after all the time uh, that we haven't seen one another and especially after the last uh, trip that we made to the exclusion zone. Yeah, I've been dealing with like Chernobyl, like familiarization tours or tourism or dark tourism experience for like the past 12 years. Uh, and uh, actually, my life is connected uh, with the territory. Many people don't know about that, but I am originally from one tiny settlement or village which was relocated uh, and became a part of the present-day Chernobyl exclusion zone. When we talk about the exclusion zone, people mostly think about 1986. They think about the disaster itself that happened on April 26, 1986. Yeah, they talk about like all the works, liquidators who were involved in those clean in that cleanup project. But there were so many other things which were happening there after 1986, after Ukraine proclaimed its independence and so on. So the history of Chernobyl exclusion zone, yeah, starts with or on the night of the accident, but it still goes. It did not stop then, but it goes, 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 and it will go for, from my personal point of view, for thousands of years. As the half-life of some of the radioactive elements there is like thousands, millions, and even billions of years. And people work there. They never stopped working on that territory. And uh, it's like almost, I would say, never-ending story with that. So how big is the exclusion zone overall? So the exclusion zone itself covers, I mean, Ukrainian side. There are like two sides of the exclusion zone. For people who who are not familiar with this topic, I would say that in 1986, during Soviet times, so what was, how how it was established. So uh, Soviet authorities made a decision to like close the area. They just draw circles on the map, five kilometers radius area, 10, and then 30. And according to them, it was the territory where people were not allowed to stay and live normally. So they just evacuated everyone. But that territory uh, included the territory mostly of Ukrainian Soviet Socialistic Republic and Belarus. Like these two states, they were affected the most because, mostly because of wind, which was spreading all radioactive isotopes from the destroyed reactor. At the beginning, wind blew to the north, to the territory of Belarus. Then it shifted, started to blow to the west, and these two directions are the most contaminated. So 
there was like 30 kilometers radius area surrounding Chernobyl nuclear power station. Okay. But when Soviet Union collapsed and all these independent states appeared on the map of the world, Ukrainian authorities changed borderlines. They carried out additional like radioecological monitoring on the territories which were adjacent to that initial 30 kilometers exclusion zone, and they detected some hotspots in many settlements, in many villages and towns which were close by. Like people, when they uh, travel to the exclusion zone, they mostly know about Chernobyl town and Pripyat. These are the most known. But there is another ghost town in the exclusion zone which is called. It used to be a town, it used to be like a territorial administrative center of the district, which involved many settlements, and people from there were eventually relocated, but only in 1993. Oh, wow. Yeah, many inhabitants even of Pripyat town, they were evacuated over there. They, they were provided new accommodations, new apartments, they started new life and everything. And then in 1993, according to the decision of Ukrainian government, that town was completely evacuated or relocated, let's say. There is a big difference between evacuation and relocation. In 1986, during evacuation, people were not allowed to take anything with them. But after, during the independence uh, uh, of Ukraine, during relocation, people were like recommended to go to go away, you know, to move, to change the place of living. And they were allowed to take pretty much everything. And I am originally from a village which is located only like three or four kilometers away from this Poliska town. So small part of this Poliska district was relocated due to increased levels of radiation, higher levels of radiation. But there are many other settlements, like really, really close, close by, where people still live. For example, my father personally, he, he is a teacher of physical training. We used to live in a village named Fabrikivka, which is completely abandoned nowadays. There is nobody living there. And he used to work as a teacher of physical training, but in the neighboring village, like maybe two kilometers away. Our village is completely abandoned nowadays, and the village, uh, the neighboring village is still inhabited. People live there. They have normal life, they have shops, uh, like everything, school, kindergarten, everything. You just cross the field and you get into the exclusion zone, into the, into the abandoned area. One of the things that I think sometimes I notice people have a little confusion over is that Pripyat is the large city that was abandoned outside of Chernobyl. Chernobyl, is a, there's, there's a small little town, right? Exactly. So... The entire Chernobyl exclusion zone nowadays covers like 2,600 square kilometers. It's equal to the size of the state Luxembourg. Yeah. And we know about two major places, the town of Chernobyl and Pripyat city. Uh, when we talk about Chernobyl, uh, let's say that this is an ancient place, an ancient town. Yeah. The town itself was founded in 1193. There was like a long history of its like development, like uh, and so on. But town itself had nothing to do with Chernobyl nuclear power station. So let me explain you why. 
when we talk about Chernobyl nuclear power station, we, like workers and people who've been there many times, we associate it with Pripyat because Pripyat town was built specially for the needs of the power station. So firstly, the idea of the power station appeared. And then, uh, as always, Soviet authorities, they needed to have like a satellite town, town where workers and their families supposed to live. So why the, why nuclear power station was named after Chernobyl town? Because in 1970, when the construction of power station was started and when it was like uh, started, Chernobyl town was the major administrative center of the district, of territorial district that existed there. Pripyat town, like literally, did not exist. There was a forest, forest was just cut down, and then like uh, apartment blocks were built over there. As a result, uh, Soviet authorities made a decision to name it after the nearby biggest settlement or town, which was Chernobyl. Another name of, of the power station is Vladimir Ilyich Lenin's nuclear power station. Like almost everything back in the times was named after Lenin, major streets right. and everything. So yeah, that's what it is. I think a lot of people are familiar with the fact that there was a terrible nuclear disaster and that people were evacuated, that there's a city that is abandoned there, but they may not have an idea, first of all, how big the city is, uh, second of all, what the differences are between Chernobyl and Pripyat. How big was Pripyat? How many people lived there about? So talking about Pripyat, up to 50,000 people okay. inhabited in the town, in the town of Pripyat. Talking about Chernobyl as an administrative center, it had a population of more or less 14,000 inhabitants. But the status of Chernobyl town was, you know, much more powerful, I would say. Pripyat was a new, modern satellite town. Yeah, it was magnificently beautiful. It was still underway of construction when the Chernobyl disaster uh, happened. And yeah, those people who had a chance to visit it, they, yeah, they could see that with their own eyes. All those mosaics, frescoes, like stained glass windows, like beautiful white streets, uh, yeah, and everything. All those high rises, 16-story apartment blocks, yeah. There were many, many things that surprised me about my visit to Pripyat, but I would say one of the things that was most surprising for me was how much art survived and how beautiful it was. And I think kind of the optimism about it Another thing, too, that you had kind of told me about was that it was a very young city, that a lot of the people that were working at the plant were coming there. They had new families. So there were tons of, of kindergartens and schools and things like that as well. I mean, more than I would have expected, perhaps. Yeah, that's exactly like Pripetan was a kind of privileged uh, settlement. You know, many young specialist engineers, they aimed and they tried to find a position to work. Uh, in such kind of a place because they were provided with everything. And that town was specially built for their needs. Uh, all those kindergartens, like average age of the inhabitants of Pripyat was like 26, 28 years. F 15 kindergartens, five secondary schools. Kids were literally like everywhere. How long have you been a guide there? And how much time would you say, you know, before COVID, how much time would you say that you would spend there on an average week or month? 
well, I've been doing this for 12 years. Yeah. And uh, before COVID, uh, like I spent more or less in a month, maybe like 25, 28 days in the exclusion zone. You're a very hard worker. I mean, that was one thing that <laughs> I could definitely tell. You, you could see that it was something that was really important to you and that you took what you do very seriously. Obviously, you're a guide there, but you also have a family tie to it beyond just being born in the zone, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, why it's so important for me? One of the things is uh, my grandfather, he was one of those first liquidators, people who were involved in the liquidation of the Chernobyl disaster. He was one of the first people who went there to eliminate, to liquidate the consequences of that uh, terrible accident. Well, when I was a kid, I didn't realize that. You know, I remember when I was visiting my grandma, uh, I saw that red medal and like that uh, liquidator certificate that people were you know, granted with or awarded with after their duty, after their job uh, at the site. But I just didn't realize what was that. I used to play with it, like throwing it from one bed on the other bed. My grandmom sometimes was angry with that. And only when I grew up and when I realized that my grandfather uh, was one of the first liquidators and he died pretty young. He died like in 1991, five years after the accident, at the age of 39. That this topic became really, really important uh, for me. My roots are from there. My grandfather, uh, like, did his duty. He, like, uh, sacrificed his life for the future generations. And, yeah, now uh, it's very, very, like, significant and important topic for me in my life. Of course. Of course. I mean, it's it's hard to imagine the overall cost of that. And... You know, I'm sure that going there every day, I mean, how how is that something emotionally that you deal with? Because, and we talked about this a little bit when I was visiting, but I mean, it's it's a place of one of the worst tragedies of modern times, and yet you're spending every single day there. How do you find yourself with that? I, I, on one hand, you have ties to uh, ties to the area and your family. On the other hand, you know, it's not like every single day that you're there, you can you can be mourning at the same time, right? Yeah, you know, nowadays uh, it became more like a routine when you go there every day. But when you have these flashbacks, uh, I go to visit my like native uh, village maybe once a year. We go there during Memorial Days with my family, with relatives, like to visit the grave of my uh, grandfather because he was buried there and he stayed there pretty much uh, forever. So once a year all former inhabitants of the exclusion zone, they have a chance to visit the graves of their family members, relatives uh, and so on during Memorial Days. So, and it's really, really emotional when you have all those flashbacks of your, you know, young years playing in the yard of your grandfather, like picking, like, for example, uh, mushrooms in the forest walking through the river which seemed so so huge for you when you were a kid and when you go there uh, these days it's like a small spring flowing right. there yeah so yeah and i can't even imagine uh, the emotion that people have and the feelings that people have um, 
from pretty town, you know, when they remember the town so beautiful, so young, when they had uh, so many plans for the future. Uh, and one night, it was all gone. I saw tears on one of my colleagues' face. Uh, nowadays, he's like 60 or 65 years old. So he uh, he had a chance to go to Pripyat and he received, he received an apartment there because he worked for one of the departments at the power station. He just got new apartment over there. He just bought new furniture. And in two months, Chernobyl disaster happened. So they just started a new life with his family, with his kids. And then in two months, they were just forced to leave from there. And he didn't go there for like, as far as I remember, for 20 or 25 years. And then he got a chance uh, to go there and to see the apartment where he flew off. Oh, it was like a really, really emotional episode in my life. I remember that perfectly well. Uh, and yeah, it's really, really like sharp, you know, emotion that people feel there. And yet, you know, when you're taking people through I think a lot of people can't understand. Uh, I mean, people people don't always have a lot of compassion either. Do you feel like when people when you're taking people as a guide, like are people fairly respectful of that for the most part? Is that something when you see groups that are touring that they seem like they're taking it with the appropriate seriousness? Majority of them, yes. Majority of people, yeah, they respect the place, they realize where they are, uh, they respect all the rules, but sometimes it happens, especially with younger generation, you know. Present day younger generation, they are acting sometimes, uh, yeah, acting the fool, let's say. Yeah. One of the things that I had kind of wanted to ask you about, I mean, obviously there's the significance in terms of the tragedy itself, but how do you see Pripyat and Chernobyl in terms of Ukraine's history? I mean, how are they tied into kind of the identity of the nation? Uh, from my personal point of view, I would say that there are many like cultural aspects or cultural heritage, like uh, the territory of northern Ukraine, which is named as Polisia, or if we translate this term uh, into English, it sounds like woodland or marshlands. So they had their own like uh, culture, songs, the way people were uh, talking, even the dialect that people had over there is completely different. For example, my parents are originally from there, and when they moved from there to another place, when they started to talk to other people, they were asking, where are you from? Are you from Western Ukraine? They say, no, we're not from Western Ukraine. We're from the North. And yeah, there is a special like dialect. There are many like cultural aspects, the way that people were building their homes, their clothes that they had. It was all, all different, like in many other parts of Ukraine. So that's one of the things. Uh, another one. I would like, and you can clearly see that when you go to visit Babushkas, Chernobyl, Babushkas people, like uh, who've been living there all their life. So that's the true, truly like unforgettable experience. Uh, yeah, and if someone gets a chance to go to the exclusion zone, I highly recommend to go and meet Chernobyl Babushkas. It's one of the lifetime experiences that uh, you always remember uh, in your life. Uh, another thing, 
Another thing I would say, you see, in the history of Ukraine, the territory of, the, of, of northern Ukraine played an important role because back in the days there was a uh, medieval trade route which connected uh, Kiev and Rus uh, with Scandinavian countries and Eastern uh, Roman Empire. So people used to live from the river and from all those trade activities which were uh, passing through uh, the territory. That's very, very important thing. And the woodland, people also used to live and survive from there, from the mushrooms, from the berries, from the fish, and everything uh, that was located on uh, the territory. A lot of people would think that going to Pripyat or Chernobyl, the Chernobyl exclusion zone is incredibly dangerous. Is that correct? No, that's not correct anymore. Look at me. I've been going there for 12 years and I'm still alive. <laughs> yes, the thing is, people just need to understand that radiation levels in the exclusion zone decreased more than like 100,000 times. Why is that? First of all, that's the matter of decontamination works, which were done there within first like five years and they're still on. Second thing, time. Time passed. You know, many uh, short-lived radioactive isotopes, they just disintegrated and disappeared. If you follow all safety rules, if you listen to your tour guide, everything will be fine. I guarantee you that like 500%. Well, I was there for four days and um, the decimeter that I had the amount of radiation exposure that I received was less than one normally gets in an international flight. And yet people are exactly. still very concerned. Yes, exactly. Look, uh, during one day tour, like uh, when you go to the exclusion zone, you are obliged to follow only those safe approved routes. It's not like you enter the exclusion zone and you can go wherever you would like to go. No, that's not true. There are safe routes which were checked, which were established, approved by different institutions and only uh, accompanied by an official tour guide, you can get in there. During one day regular visit to the exclusion zone, you will obtain between three or five microzeverts of exposure dose. Okay? Three, five microsieverts is pretty much the same that you get during a flight from uh, from Western Europe to Kiev. And during a transatlantic flight, like I took personally a flight, di direct flight from Kiev to New York. During that flight, I obtained between like 22 or 23 microsieverts of exposure dose just from outer space, from the sun. That's one of the things that, you know, I'm, I'm kind of here to talk to you about is just that there's there's so many of these ideas that people have about visiting the area that are so wrong uh, because, you know, you're kind of not around there. Um, when I was there, I would say it was at least four times a day, right, that you have to go through one of the radiation detectors in case the uh, a particle has got on like your shoe or your sleeve or something. Yeah, every day on tour, we pass like uh, radiation checks. Every time when you leave each part of the exclusion zone, you are obliged to do that. 
nowadays it became even more strict. They check like they check cars, they check like tires, they check bottom of the cars, they check uh, carpets in the car in case you just uh, pick up something with your shoes. Well, people just need to realize that all the all those radioactive isotopes or particles which release from the reactor, they eventually like landed. You know, they fell on trees, on the roads, like uh, on roofs of the homes, of the houses, and so on. But during decontamination of the exclusion zone, they were washed. They were washed from roofs, from everywhere, and they got on the soil. In many parts of the exclusion zone, surface soil was removed, especially around the power station in Pripyat town, in some parts of Chernobyl town, and many, many other places. But all other ones, they just travel deeper into the soil. And they just, they're, they're just staying there. And everything is a matter of the activity and the half-life that they have. So if you don't dig anything, like more or less uh, in a year, radioactive isotopes, they travel maybe like one or two centimeters per year. So if 36 years have already passed uh, since the moment of the disaster, so they are probably like 40 or 50 centimeters deep in the soil. So just to kind of... Um recap that i mean don't dig uh <laughs> while you're there don't um uh, another one of the rules was uh not to eat anything like animals or uh fruits and vegetables or things like that is that correct exactly yeah don't drink water <laughs> okay <laughs> surface water like everything is functioning in the town of chernobyl when people go there they like don't realize that there are shops, there are hotels, there are bars, there are canteens. People don't realize that there are uh, many people working on the territory. And the territory itself like, was never like completely abandoned. No. Evacuation of civil people was carried out immediately. Yeah. Well, let's say within like two, three weeks. But everything was controlled by people. And all works in the exclusion zone, they were done mostly by people. Even when Soviet authorities tried to use some remote controlled equipment in some areas which were like badly, badly contaminated, they like refused to work. And then again, people were sent there to do all those the most dangerous works. So there were always people there. And that, I think, is maybe the biggest misconception. There are a lot of people, when you talk to them about it, that they have this view that, um, you know, that Chernobyl, the area around the Chernobyl nuclear power plant is just this sort of desolate wasteland, you know, with dead trees and no people and no animals. And I... I mean, I was aware that it wasn't like that before I went, but it really couldn't have been further from the case. H how would you say that's incorrect? Obviously, you were talking about the people that work at the plant. How many people come into the plant every day? Uh, so nowadays, let's say before war conflict, mm -hmm. which we have in Ukraine nowadays, in total, there are like more or less 8,000 people working within the territory of Chernobyl exclusion zone. So the major places where people work are, first, the town of Chernobyl, which is still uh, like a working place for many people, major enterprises, mostly 
uh, government-owned enterprises, they are located in the town of Chernobyl. What kind of enterprises? People always ask this question. So what do people do there? So first of all, police station, fire station, security service department, like prosecutor's office, there are shops, there are bars, there are canteens, uh, there are hotels, there are hostels, uh, there is a hospital where people regularly pass medical examinations. There are also uh, offices that deal with management, processing and disposal of radioactive waste and materials which are still being generated within the exclusion zone. People just need to realize that one of the major functions of Chernobyl exclusion zone is a barrier function. That's why there is like barbed wire fence, which completely like encloses the territory, as the main function of the territory is just to prevent spreading of radioactive materials outside the exclusion zone. That's why access is totally restricted for all civil people. And that's why on the way out, we are obliged to pass radiation checks just to prevent spreading of radioactive particles and isotopes on shoes, on cars, uh, over that's one of the most important things. Another thing, radiation monitoring. There is an automatic radiation monitoring system installed within the exclusion zone, with the help of which radiation background is monitored at different parts that are like, as far as I remember, there were 38 special devices which monitor the radiation background and that pass all these results to special institutions, to the state exclusion zone agency, which controls all the activities with, within the territory, and also scientific center, which is located there. So there is scientific center, there are laboratories, there is state exclusion zone agency. So everything is functioning uh, in the territory of the exclusion zone and in the town of Chernobyl. That's the town of Chernobyl, okay? Another huge... Uh, working place is the site of Chernobyl nuclear power station. Right. The thing is, people think that right after the Chernobyl disaster, all reactors there were stopped and it was never running again. No, right. that's not true. Reactor uh, number four exploded. Then neighboring reactors, because there were four of them before the moment of the disaster, they were temporarily stopped reactor three, two, and one. But after a decontamination project of the industrial side of the power station was completed, reactors one, two, and three were restarted. Chernobyl nuclear power station was the first nuclear power station that was built on the territory of the Soviet Ukraine. There was a huge lack of electricity supply to this part of the Soviet Union, okay? So they just needed to restart those uh, reactors. And such kind of a decision was made. In October 1986, reactor number one was restarted. In November 1986, the second one. And reactor number three, which was pretty much adjacent to uh, destroyed reactor number four, they even had like uh, common communications uh, and rooms and so on. They were separated, they were cut. And then reactor number three was also restarted and people continued like their work inside for many years. And even nowadays people work. Yeah, Chernobyl nuclear power station stopped electricity uh, generation. Uh, the last reactor, reactor number three was 
shut down on December 15th, 2000. It was the last one. And from that very moment, it doesn't generate electricity anymore. Uh, the power station is just underway of decommissioning. You know, they just dismantle all the equipment that was used there during its operation. Yeah, they removed spent nuclear fuel rods. They brought them to the special storages. They look uh, after them like there's a huge amount of work to be done there over the next like hundreds uh, of years. And also uh, another very important part of the work is shelter object transformation into ecologically safe system. You know, that destroyed reactor, which was covered by uh, old uh, so-called shelter object. Nowadays, uh, the state of it is really unstable. You know, it's really poor because it was hastily built. Uh, people tried their best just to cover the hole to stop the release of radiation. But uh, the uh, lifetime of it was designed as like 30, 35 years, you know. So that's why an urgent need of this new safe confinement, a new dome appeared. It was built, it was pushed over. And uh, hopefully in the future, somehow, that old sarcophagus will be safely dismantled step by step. And then there will be a try to dig out all those highly contaminated melted remains of the reactor core, and they will be brought like to the special storage. And as far as the area around the plant, um, I, I mean, I thought the forests were absolutely beautiful. Uh, it actually reminded me a little bit of uh, you know, Pennsylvania or New York. Um, like out in the areas that I'm familiar with. And um, I, I mean, I thought it was just beautiful. And also wildlife has really made a comeback there too, correct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look, uh, within first years after the accident, there was a huge, uh, I would say, shock that nature and wildlife experienced, you know? Uh, the release of all the radioactive isotopes, like you can't smell it, you can't, uh, you can't feel it, you, you can't do anything. But once it gets in your body, uh, and if the amount is huge, then some really, really bad processes are taking place in your body. And eventually, yeah, if, if it's too high, like uh, living beings, they just die, right? Talking about the wildlife, first 10 years, that's... It's not a secret that there were many cases of mutations among wildlife, among humans. Uh, but later on, uh, wildlife pretty much got adjusted to the mm, radiation environment, let's say, and they started to feel themselves pretty much safe, especially without humans. The territory is huge. 60% of the exclusion zone it's pretty much covered with forest. There's enough space for them. Uh, there's enough food for them. So within years, they just adjusted to that radiation environment and many of wildlife that hadn't been seen there for hundreds of years, they returned. Like what? There are many wolves, foxes, deers, elks, mooses, uh, wild boars, then lynxes, returned uh, brown bears also uh, and then in 1998 uh, scientists 
of the exclusion zone in collaboration with one of the natural reserves from the south of Ukraine, from Askania Nova, they made a decision to brought some wild horses, Przewalski horses, to the territory and have a look how they will adjust to such kind of an environment. And those horses adjusted perfectly well, and there are over 100, 100 of them nowadays in the exclusion zone. That's amazing. I mean, I, I think there were so many expectations that were defied in that sense. One of the other things that uh, I meant to hit on in this sort of section too is when you're talking about the people that come to the area, you also have tourists. So would you say prior to COVID, like how many people would come to that area a year to see it? So before, uh, like, let's, let's start from my personal experience, like 20 years, 12 years ago, when I just started to work in the area, there were more or less like four or 5,000 visitors a year. Okay, but uh, starting, I, I would say maybe 2015, 2016, the number of visitors increased, started to increase like rapidly, rapidly and rapidly every, every, every year. At the beginning, maybe 7,000, then 10,000, then like 36,000. And in 2019, just before COVID, there was like a breaking record, 124,000 visitors in a year. That's amazing. That was a record. Yeah. Then COVID just destroyed uh, everything. And uh, last last year, as far as I remember, as far as I don't remember exactly, but between maybe like 30,000, 40,000. Which is still not not anywhere near that high amount, but a lot higher than I think most people would would expect. I mean, as I was going through, it was like, you know, you would see people going through in buses and stopping and getting out in tour groups or, or yeah, yeah, big, big, big buses. Like, yeah, there's, there's a huge increase. I think if not COVID in 2020, there would be over like 200,000 visitors. And I have to say, just to sort of plug you for a moment and, and to promote what you do, there are definitely different ways of touring and you can go and and stay with one of the big groups and they're they're relatively cheap but i i felt like the experience was much more meaningful if you want to go with somebody that's an individual that really knows the area um because first of all you were you were saying that there was a lot of turnover with those groups in terms of employees leaving and coming and things like that right whereas you've been doing this for a long time yeah, like I prefer to have like personal face to face contact with my guests. That's why like I don't offer like big bus tours and I just prefer to have like individual private tour private tours with uh, with my guests. That's like my priority. That's what my focus on what I'm doing. And people really uh, enjoy and love such kind uh, you know of experience. Oh, it's much better. I mean, I thought your your rates are very reasonable, but also it gives you the opportunity to really kind of take your time with things and see them versus being herded out with a crowd of people standing in front of something, having somebody give you a speech they've given a million times before, and then taking pictures for three minutes with a, a, a crowd of people standing in front of you and then getting back in the bus and going somewhere else. There's just, you know, no comparison between those two things. And, and it, it, you really were wonderful with that. I mean, I, I have to say, like, I really, really found it meaningful and, and just was very excited about returning. 
what would you say is your favorite area uh, there? Like, what do you, and when I say favorite, I mean, obviously, like, you know, it's kind of a weird word to use, but like, what did you think is the most meaningful area? I know you told me, for example, about a church. Uh, yeah, like, for me personally, one of my favorite places would be that abandoned church, which is hidden far away, far away from like all known, let's say, sightings of the exclusion zone. Yeah, it takes a lot of time to get there. The road there is really, really bad, but it's worth time and efforts, you know, to get there. Uh, and that's what I'm trying to do on my multi-day tours. When I have like three, four, five-day tours, that's one of my favorite parts. Like when you go there, when there are when there is no one on your way, you're just alone. You have your time just to walk there, to take your time there, to look carefully, to look more attentively at at, at all the details. It's one of the most like pleasant parts of the tour because sometimes in 2000, like. 19 and even last year uh there were a few times when we got in front of the ferris wheel yeah yeah and th there were like 200 300 people yep just yep. just running around and trying to to take a picture of of the ferris wheel without people but on yeah. a private tour when you have like two three days for example like you can like if your tour guide is good you can always uh ask him or her to get to prepaid, for example, in the morning when nobody is there or in the evening after 5 or 6 p.m. when nobody is there again. And that's what people really, really appreciate. And that's what they really, really want to get. They want to get the atmosphere of an abandoned place and not like overclouded place where like three or 400 people are staying at the same time. Right. And I really realize this and that's what I'm trying to, to give, you know, for my guests when they come. Because that's that's the thing they want to get. So I plan every time when I go there, like every tour of mine, it's like a different, like small challenge, you know. Because uh, I know all all tour guides, and I know sometimes their routes, how they go, like what they do. Talking about uh, big bus tours, they have like a regular route. So they have this location, this location, ten minutes there, fifteen minutes there, twenty minutes there, and they follow the routes. When you have like a private tour, you can change. You can just yeah change the route, start from the backwards, like uh, yeah. So that's a big advantage. In April of 2020, there's this devastating wildfire that happened around Pripyat. Um, how large was it, and what was the damage that it caused? So from the from the information that I got, uh, the fire covered approximately approximately twenty thousand hectares. Uh, Consequences are pretty bad, but uh, you know, uh, we were pretty much lucky because fire didn't reach like Pripyat town. Otherwise, like the town could uh, got burned, and then like uh, yeah, it would lose some attraction uh, uh, from uh, from the visitors, from people. But <clears throat> it was really really close to the power station. Yeah, one of the summer camps uh, named as uh, Emerald. Emerald. Yeah. Yeah. It got burned. There was those nice, cozy, beautiful uh houses for kids, summer houses where they could stay uh during uh summer holidays. Yeah. 
like that location disappeared. Few villages which were located nearby the power station and in the direction to the southeast, they got burned uh, completely. So unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, some of the locations, yeah, they just uh, disappeared, unfortunately. And I'm very happy to have some of those, you know, photos that I took, especially of Emerald summer camp on my camera and uh, on my phone. Oh, like. Emerald was was beautiful. I mean, I, I thought the murals were so touching. Um, and again, I mean, you saw, and I know this is a weird thing to say because, you know, people love their kids across the world, but I, I felt like again and again, you could see in the city the love that the people had for their children. And I don't know how to put it, because again, like, it's not a weird thing that people would love their kids, but at the same time, first of all, it's kind of universal. So it's like, you you can feel it. You can feel it from years away and across the world, you know, that's something that you share in common, but, but also, you know, people think of it as maybe kind of a cold place. And yet, even after all this time, there's that warmth. And so, yeah, I was, I was really saddened to see that when the fire happened and you mentioned um, that it, it was pretty much right across the street from the power plant, right? Yeah. Um, what risks did that pose? Well, you see, uh... The fire in front of the power station always causes some like huge, you know, threat and danger, especially all those power lines, because they are still in operation there just for for uh, people's understanding. Yeah, the power station itself doesn't generate electricity, but it consumes electricity and it is a part of the general electricity network that Ukraine has. So there is like a, a substation of power grid, which is still uh, in operation and once it goes there it could cut like electricity supply to many like big cities and uh, huge areas early in the russian invasion of ukraine soldiers took over chernobyl uh and held the workers hostage was anybody hurt from the information that i have nobody was hurt they were just uh, kept inside the power station for for two or three weeks. And then rotation took place, you know, of the workers. And then suddenly, like, Russians just left. But they took some of National Guards. So there are, like, uh, there's a special team of, uh, you know, a military unit, uh, which is responsible for securing such kind of like uh, objects, let's say nuclear objects or strategic objects, you know, uh, on the territory of Ukraine. So many uh, National Guards were taken uh, on the territory of Belarus first and then to uh, Russia, and they still keep them as uh, hostages, I think, for future, you know, prisoners exchange or whatever, or military exchanges. So that's what I know, like, uh, because... Uh, my brother's wife's uh, father, he works inside the power station and he was uh, among those first hostages or workers who were inside the power station when uh, Russians like invaded uh, on the territory of Ukraine. So he stayed inside the power station for like three, three weeks as far as I remember. And only then he was rotated for for another for another workers for another personnel who changed them. I, I can't imagine. What are the dangers of 
the Russians' actions there. And when I ask this, I mean, you know, both the immediate dangers for the people of Ukraine, but also like the international community. I mean, this was a very, very dangerous and foolish thing to do. Talking about the site of Chernobyl nuclear power station, you know about the new safe confinement, you know, if they destroyed that, if it collapsed, for example, it would destroy like the old sarcophagus and then there would be another like release or radioactive cloud that could spread uh, radioactivity again uh, all over the Western Europe or all over uh, all over the world. There was electricity cut off and there are many, there is a spent nuclear fuel storage. There are many of those of such kind of facilities and there was electricity cut off. So in case you don't have electricity supply to such kind of places, it becomes really, really, uh, really, really dangerous. So as you can't control, you can't provide uh, security and safety inside uh, such kind of facilities, which is extremely dangerous. It's like a, I don't know, nuclear terrorism. The same story with uh, the same story with Zaporizhia nuclear power station, which is still controlled by uh, Russians. They they don't let like Ukrainian uh, experts to get there. So that's a huge question to International Atomic Energy Agency. From from my from my point of view. Well, it's, it's horrifying because you're having soldiers who are not particularly being seen to show any kind of judgment or humanity when it comes to things like this in control of areas that pose catastrophic risk to everybody for years and years and years. And along those lines, it's reported that the soldiers camped in the Red Forest while they were there. What, what is the Red Forest? Uh, from some videos and from some of the photos that I found that I received from some of my colleagues, yeah, that's true that uh, Russian soldiers, they actually camped uh, on the territory of the Red Forest. The Red Forest is one of the most contaminated parts of Chernobyl exclusion zone. It is the territory which is located like to the west from the destroyed reactor, and it's one of the most contaminated because wind blew that direction after the disaster. So there are the territory is completely covered with pine trees over there, but as a result of massive radiation poisoning from the destroyed reactor, western direction, a lot of pine trees, which were there, they just turned red because of massive radiation poisoning. Eventually, those trees died. They were like cut down and buried directly in the soil uh, at that very location. Like the area covered approximately 10 square kilometers, and it's one of the most contaminated parts of uh, Chernobyl exclusion zone. Like on our way, Heading back from Pripyat to Chernobyl, we like partially were crossing the territory of the Red Forest from time to time, and even inside the car, sitting and driving on speed, uh, radiation levels were getting up to like 20, 30 microsieverts. Right. I remember going by there, and the um, yeah. you know the, the the counter really kind of getting very active at that point. And it was like, okay, we'll slow down, but we're not going to stay here. Definitely wouldn't want to go and like pee in the woods or I don't know, dig trenches and sleep in them or whatever. And I mean, isn't that essentially what they were doing? Like what they were, they were camping there, right? Uh, 
hard to say for me to be honest i for me i it's a big question you know because from my point of view it seems to me that they had just literally they had no knowledge where they were and what they were doing there i think the commanders just told them you go there you come there you just stay there you hide there and that's all so they were just digging and doing uh, everything that they were told to do but i thought that the commanders had some knowledge or at least they learned or read something about the territory of the exclusion zone but in fact it seems that they have literally no knowledge about uh, the place and what was happening over there to me it's just a mind-boggling lack of preparedness and planning because one of the other interesting things about radiation is that it's invisible you know you can't you can't see it it's not like you're really going to know i mean it's one thing if you have you know a counter or something with you but other than that, like if you look at an area of the forest, it looks like any other area of the forest. It doesn't look any different. And you would think if you were going into an area that would have these risks that somebody in the planning section might have been like, hey, maybe we should take this into account. But it, I mean, in a way, it really seems like uh, they, they, don't, they don't care so much about their own soldiers either. Absolutely. I agree with you. Like, it seems that they just sent them or told them, you go there, you do that, you do that, and that's all. And nobody cared. Nobody cared what's going to happen to these guys, like, in the future. It's also reported that they left mines in the area. Is, is that something that you know anything about? I just saw a few photos of the mines, and uh, that's all. I saw that there were a lot of works on demining of the territory, especially around the power station site. But yeah, that's all what I know. And that's incredibly risky because, again, not only does that pose an immediate threat to the people that are on the site, but uh, I mean, this is still not a place that can really sustain the type of, of damage or problems that are created when you have war. I agree with you. And uh, there are so many things that I can't get that like I it's hard to explain. Yeah. Yeah. The Russian invasion of Ukraine is 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 really one of the most profoundly awful things that I, I would say has happened in my life. And I know how upsetting it is to me. I know how difficult it is for me to see it. And it's not even my home and right now you you've just returned home to Bucha, right yeah we returned to my apartment with my girlfriend like on on tuesday yeah we returned home we saw many terrible things on the way uh as closer as we as we were getting as we were approaching to Bucha, especially in the nearby settlements like stoyanka and many others well, it's it's evil, you know, it's so, so scary when you remember those places like alive, you know, with like hundreds of people all. But nowadays, like when you get really, really close to Kiev, you see all these burnt gas stations, you see remains of the tanks, you see the remains of burnt cars, like which were shelled. Yeah, we didn't see any like 
dead bodies of people inside because they were like uh, taken away and buried already. But it's so, so scary. And yesterday uh, we went to another like nearby town, which is named as Borodjanka. Maybe you've heard about it, but what we saw there, it was literally evil. Like, it seemed like uh, Russian soldiers were driving on tanks there and just shooting, like, both directions, like, non-stop. There are, like, apartment blocks. You see one end, you see another end, and in the middle, there is nothing. Like, it's completely gone. It's completely destroyed. It's burned. Houses are destroyed, like, completely. And it's so, so frightening. It's so, so scary and for no reason. Right. Like, literally, there is no reason. And when uh, Russian officials say that they carry out liberation of Russian-speaking inhabitants of Ukraine, it sounds so, so stupid, no? It's uh, it's a true lie because there was never any problem with Russian-speaking people on the territory of Ukraine. Majority of my friends, they speak Russian. We never ever had any problems or issues with that. Never. So it's just a huge, complete lie that Russians, Russian officials are just trying to spread all over the world that they are like liberating someone or something on the territory of Ukraine. It is. It is amazingly, amazingly evil. Um, and that is something that. You'd like to think that perhaps evil is in the past and things like this can't happen now. As you're in as you're in Bucha right now, I mean it was your was your home damaged? Your apartment? Uh, luckily our apartment was untouched, it's intact. Uh, even one of my cars, uh, it stayed in Bucha for two months and it remained like untouched. Uh, so I consider myself as extremely lucky guy because everything is fine. But uh, some other corners and parts of Bucha, they were badly, badly destroyed. There is like an apartment complex, maybe like 500 meters away from ours, and it's badly destroyed. Really, there is pretty much nothing left. I, I, I can't imagine. I mean, I just can't imagine. Because again, I mean, it, it, having you know, having gone to sites of various kinds of of disasters in in my life, I mean, I think it's one thing to see a place that is meaningful to somebody else, and you can kind of vicariously understand that maybe through empathy or whatever. But it's entirely different when it's something that you know you've seen every day, a, a street that you walk by all the time, um, you know. Kriv, am I pronouncing that correctly? Say it again, please. Kiev? Am I pronouncing Kiev? Kriv? Kiev. Kiev, yeah. Okay. Um, just making sure. Uh, again, you know, I, I, I wanted to make sure I got everything right. It was one of the most beautiful cities uh, I've ever visited. I mean, truly. And um, also some of the best sushi that I've had that was that was kind of strange it was not a thing I expected but uh it's a, apparently it's like one of the the top sushi cities of the uh, of the world um it's also really meaningful to me because m my wife was born in Ukraine and 
Her father was a famous artist. In fact, uh, I, I wanted to thank you because when I visited, you, you went out of your way to help me get to a gallery that had a book of her father's work and she never met her father, you know? And so that book that you took me to go get, had we not done that, I, I mean, who knows? Who knows where those books are or what'll, what'll happen to them? But I mean, that's, that's um, the only book of her father's work that she has so it's something that's you know very meaningful to us too how how much has been destroyed there and why do you feel that the russians are attacking in a manner that has so little regard for civilian injuries i mean you think if they just wanted to occupy that just leveling everything and murdering everybody wouldn't be the uh wouldn't be the goal well you see some parts of Kiev, they were also like badly, badly damaged by rockets. Like, and then, like, you see, there are some war rules that exist all over the world, but it seems like uh, Russians, they don't, uh, they don't follow any of those. Right. And when our president uh, speaks about genocide, that's truly, that's truly what's happening, you know, uh, in this war conflict, like Russian authorities, they literally want like to kill Ukrainians as a nation and just uh, forget about that. And it seems so unfair. Like if you are trying to liberate some Russian-speaking inhabitants, like we don't mind if you take them on the territory of Russia and they live there freely and with no problems. Why would you? like attack us, why would you invade on the territory of Ukraine and kill our citizen? Why? Why would you do that? Like what's what there is there is no explanation for that. And at the beginning when they were talking about uh demilitarization, the denazification of uh, that was the main goal of their operation, nowadays they're not talking about that. They're just shooting and uh bombarding everything. Like even maternity hospitals. What did babies do like against you or like what's what's the reason for that? It's like literally unexplainable. Why is it so important then that Ukraine remains sovereign in your opinion? I mean, I have many feelings about that myself, but I mean, for you, why is why is that so important? Uh, To realize this, I think. Like. You already visited Ukraine, and if you have like general knowledge, and you saw how beautiful Ukraine is. Just yes. to realize why Ukraine uh, needs to remain sovereign, I think like once in a lifetime, every person must visit Ukraine, and then you will truly realize why is that. Like that's that's my personal uh, like opinion and attitude. Like that's my answer why Ukraine needs to remain sovereign because you just need to come here and see like how beautiful people are here, how beautiful the landscape, how kind they are, and what kind of traditions we have, what kind of cultural aspects you know uh, in our country we like uh, preserve and try to develop like for the future. I was very much impressed by that too. Uh, when I went there. I mean, the the food was delicious. The buildings were absolutely gorgeous. You could see that you're a people that care very much about, you know, art and music. What are your feelings on the support from the international community? What more could and should we be doing to help right now, do you feel? 
It's a very complicated question, but from what I felt personally, they didn't do enough at all. And like many Ukrainians, they have huge, huge questions to United Nations organization, you know, which is like, which status is to preserve peace and safety in the world. And also, from my point of view, as I have like a relation to Chernobyl exclusion zone and nuclear power stations, also to International Atomic Energy Agency, like that's your field. That's that's the thing that you need to to do. That's your part of work. And when I was commenting some of tweets, you know, regarding the Chernobyl nuclear power station when it was occupied by Russians, I asked why. Uh, wooden director of International Atomic Energy Agency like come to the power station when it was occupied with Russians. But somebody replied that there is no access. But I think he could apply even maybe to Russian authorities just to get access there, just to check what's going on there. Like And the same story with the United Nations organization, also the Red Cross. Uh, I have many doubts, like uh, how their work is planned, what do they do, because uh, I don't see uh, that much support, you know, from them. For example, let's talk about those poor people who got stuck in Mariupol. Like, uh, how, how do they survive there within all this time? And like, is it like, is it really impossible to make an agreement with Russian authorities, soldiers, just to get that way to bring them food, to bring them like water. There are so many kids, there are so many innocent people who have nothing to do with the military, you know. They, they, they're just blocked there and they receive nothing, like literally nothing. So why wouldn't you like go there and try to just to arrange the way. I think here, one of the things that you see frequently, I mean, it's, uh, I know I've told you this before when we were sort of, you know, texting back and forth, but you see Ukraine flags everywhere. You see messages of support for Ukraine everywhere. Um, And one of the things that I personally wrestle with is that, uh, you know, it's 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 great to go and do that, and you know, keep it in people's minds and to to express support. But I think a lot of people are wondering, like, well, what actually can you do then? Like, I mean, you know, I'm not the president, I'm not a lawmaker. Like, what are things do you feel that people who are just sort of ordinary citizens can do that can help? the people of Ukraine right now and the situation that they're in? And maybe that's too big of a question. I mean, I, I don't know if you know that or not. I, 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 I'm just curious. Well, you see, for me, it's also pretty much like a difficult question because uh, those who left the territory of Ukraine, they are dealing with many other like problems in other countries. You know, those who stay within the territory of Ukraine, yeah, they lost their jobs, they lost their homes. And nowadays, it's pretty much becomes the responsibility of Ukrainian government, how they, like, first of all, we need to wait until this war ends somehow. Because without that, like, you can start on 
restoration. You can start like rebuilding everything, but there is no guarantee that, for example, Russian troops get back to Belarus and start again attacking uh, Ukraine from the north. So you can restore and then lose it again. So it must come to a certain point, to a certain end, when like either they completely leave the territory of Ukraine, and that's what we want, because like there were so many people already died, like uh, for what? So, and then think like what to do with all this. Right. Are there organizations that you could recommend that are currently helping people that people can support? You see, there are there are many organizations. There are many fake organizations. So right. I I truly I believe only those like governmental like funds and institutions who directly deal with like uh, military uh, military aspects. So and when people ask me, don't you mind, for example, maybe like to collect money for the military forces? No, I just send them all these like information about the special funds which were created by Ukrainian government and like it would be better if people directly donate like whatever they want directly to the government you know instead of dealing with that how would you recommend they do that is there like a website or something or do you wire yeah there is a website yeah to support like yeah Okay. Well, we'll share that in the notes so that people can check that out. I also want to make sure that people are aware that I will have links to your website, to your social media and things like that so they can follow you directly. And I hope they would because, I mean, you post absolutely, you are an excellent photographer in your own right as well (laughs) as a guide and certainly have greater access to Pripyat and Chernobyl and you know more about it both through your your education from being there but also from experience so I would think if anybody has any further questions or wants to talk with you more about it or see photos that you've done or anything I would really hope that they would follow you what is your website who are you on social media that they can go follow you Uh, I call myself as a private Chernobyl guide so if they just uh, type private Chernobyl guide, they will get to my uh, website. And on my website, they can find like uh, links to my uh, social media, like on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, like pretty much uh, everywhere. Great. So private Chernobyl guide. Yeah. Look that up. And uh, I guess in closing, is there anything you'd like to add that we didn't cover either about Chernobyl and Pripyat or about the current situation in, in invasion? No, I think we just covered pretty much everything, like, in our talk. So if you have maybe other questions for me, like, yeah, I'll do my best to answer. Oh, I I have millions of questions. I know I want to be respectful of your time, but uh, perhaps at some point we could could schedule another one of these. But, uh, Misha, I want to thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing what you're going through. Thank you for sharing your experiences. It really, truly is a pleasure. I mean, it was wonderful working with you and setting up the tours, you know, I I think that was a really amazing experience. It was amazing actually going through the area with you. And it's been fantastic talking to you today. Thank you. Thank you very much, my friend. It was a pleasure for me. Truly, like, yeah, it was like super, super nice to see you, to talk to you, and just to share a little bit of my Chernobyl experience and of, of my life with you. I hope things go well and that there is a swift and peaceful resolution. And 
you know, like I said, you're, you're always welcome in my home when you come here. So thank you very much. <laughs> if I ever do, yeah, I'll definitely drop you a message and like, yeah, we'll come. Okay. Thank you. I want to thank Misha for his generosity in sharing his time and experiences and remind our listeners that they can follow him on social media at Private Chernobyl Guide or visit his website at private-chernobyl.guide. I'm including the links in the show notes, which are in the description of the episode you're listening to, as is the link to donate to the government of Ukraine. I hope you'll agree that the invasion and destruction in Ukraine is not something we can turn our backs on or ignore. The need for aid and support is going to continue long after the war is over and when the rebuilding begins. As I wrap up this episode and the first season of the podcast, I'd like to share a song by singer-songwriter Elizaveta that I absolutely love, entitled Home, from her Songs of Sleep EP that, to me, speaks to hope in the darkest of times for peace and reunion with the loved ones that make our home a part of our hearts. I'm going to post a link to her music in the notes, and I was debating sharing a link to her recent fundraising stream for Save the Children Ukraine, but I don't know when you're going to be listening to this and whether it'll still be active, so I'm going to just share a direct link to Save the Children Ukraine instead. As you may be aware, during this war, schools and hospitals have been destroyed, and more than 6 million people have been forced to flee the country with nothing more than what they can carry. Save the Children provides food, water, hygiene kits, blankets, and financial support for refugees, including help for children who are unaccompanied or separated from their families. They operate worldwide, too, providing care and services for children in need across the globe. Charity Navigator, a website that rates the trustworthiness of charities, has given them a four-star rating, which is the highest that there is. That means they're a legit nonprofit that provides the aid they solicit donations for. Please, if you're able, consider making a contribution. To my listeners this season, thank you so much for your time and support, and I look forward to sharing more stories of abandoned places with you in Season 2, which I'm currently recording. To our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, I hope you know how deeply you're cared about and how much of the international community is grieving with you. I realize that words don't fix the situation, but please, know that you're not alone. Slava Ukraini. Here's Elizaveta with Home. <laughs>